This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 201. So for this week's episode, I know a lot of the photography students that listen to my show have been asking about this topic. It's something they're interested in, and I wanted to get the one man I know that knows pretty much everything there is to know about this topic. My friend Brett Bergram from the Latitude Photography Podcast. He's also a professor uh, or an educator at Walla Walla University in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, specializing in photography classes there, as well as, I believe, uh, uh, illustrations or something like that. I know there's something else that's media related, (laughs) but he'll be able to fill that in for you. So without further ado, I'm going to have Brent come on here with us and we are going to talk about printing your own images and why you should give it a try. So Brent, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back. Hey, Liam, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And you are right. Printing is, it's, it's something that is so I'm always involved with it, with it in one way, shape, or form. I teach graphic design and photography at the university. And so whether we're printing large, grand items, small items, but what really gets me going is definitely when we can take our photographs and make a fantastic museum quality or gallery quality print out of those items. And there's just as there's certainly a process we need to be able to follow and be able to understand. Uh, and then we can see our work in, in, you know, physical form, which is just amazing. Absolutely. Now, just uh, for a couple of minutes here, uh, for any of my new listeners that haven't had a chance to go back and listen to your other appearances on the show, go ahead and give my listeners a little bit of your background in photography, and then we'll get into the the meat and potatoes of printing your own images. Sure. Well, I started professionally back in 97, actually, when I was actually in school, in college, and I quickly, after I don't know, a year or two of, of just doing some professional work, realize events and such, I realized, you know, travel photography is really where it's at for me. And so I started doing a whole bunch of travel related, you know, just ideas with my photography, sending, you know, slides out to magazines that what have you to see if, you know, they would run a story, if they would take some images, whatever the case is. And I just really tried to push that effect uh, with my photography. And then in 2007, I started teaching photography. And so with the academic schedule, it's just really awesome. I've been able to move, you know, here and there with my summers and, you know, we get some time off at at various times throughout the year. And so I've been able to keep up with it and really hone the craft while also then pursuing and attaining a master's in photography from Savannah College of Art and Design. And then on, that's where in that program, that's actually where I fell in love with printing because they had a printing class that just really took it, I mean, beyond the next level. You know, you think about going to the next level, I'm just like, this was really what caused me to just sink my teeth into it and just like absolutely fall in love with it because it is such a, a nebulous thing for so many photographers who haven't approached printing and 
the ability to just have that foundation and then you keep going, you keep refining your process and you keep refining your efforts. That's where it really uh, just is. It's difficult to adequately describe when it actually works. And when it's like, not only when it works, but when it's just so awesome and it's even better than what you saw on screen, I've had that happen several times with some prints and it's just like, okay, this is definitely why I, this, this is why I do it because there's just that elevated approach, that elevated meaning uh, with the work. And so right now, actually, um, continuing just a little bit more with the work that I'm doing, I'm actually on sabbatical this quarter, which is something that really, it would be awesome if, if most positions and most jobs could offer sabbatical to their employees. But we have an opportunity uh, as professors, they, one of the things that we need to do is to constantly uh, develop professionally. And so I've spent the last uh, several weeks now, uh, because we're on the quarter system, uh, I went on a big old road trip in September and I covered all, talked about all that on my podcast. Uh, but now what I'm going through is the individual pictures and talking about those types of things. Ultimately, I need to print these items and I need to design some custom related items according to my my trip. And so printing is going to be a huge component because I'm going to have a gallery show and where I'm going to use the school's art gallery and I'm going to be uh, showcasing the photos and the other items that I design uh, from from this experience. And so I'm so in the thick of it with this project and I'm just really excited to be able to do this work. But also since I'm not in the classroom this fall, I get to focus almost 100% on this work and it's definitely a, a truly a blessing to be able to spend that much time doing this stuff. Yeah, that would absolutely be fabulous. And I agree with you. I wish all employers would allow us sabbaticals. <laughs> it would be nice. <laughs> okay, so looking at the subject of a photographer wanting or needing to print their own images, uh, where should they start? Now, I'm assuming the first thing they need to consider is a good quality printer. Right. Where should you start? This is such, this can feel, I should say, like a loaded question. And there's a, there's a couple of ways to go about it, too. The first thing that you can think about is, first off, do you want to actually be the one printing your own? Or do you want to prepare the file as best as possible and have someone else print it? Because there are boatloads of places online that you can go to and you can have them print your files. Really, about 75% of the work is identical between these two tracks. So whether or not you're going to print it yourself or you're going to get a printer, 75% or more of what we're going to talk about is actually identical in the process. There's, there's just nothing that I would say changes in the overall, you know, view of the, of the process of what you look at when you're looking at saying, okay, you know, if you're going to make the decision, you want to buy these, the, buy yourself a printer, certainly a good quality printer is going to be something that you really need to look at. The first thing I would recommend on that is just don't get a letter sized printer where it's an inkjet printer and it only does letter size up to that. Whether you go on Canon or Epson, even HP, they make some printers too in this category, but they're so low on the totem pole of, of 
a major being a major player in the industry, Canon and Epson are the major players in the industry. So if it's a 13 by 19 printer, you're going to it's going to have a photo quality approach to it and that's going to be the 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 minimum line the baseline that I would say go for they also have 17 inch wide printers they then have 24 44 64 inch wide printers these get into the multiple thousands of dollars and then your inks are also you know they're like a half a gallon or maybe a quart of ink a liter of ink in each cartridge and that's all fine and good. And I definitely have worked with those printers and I do at the school. I have a 44 inch uh, printer at the school and a 17 inch printer at the school, but here at home, I've got a 13 by 19 Canon, uh, printer. This is the Pixma pro 10, which is a discontinued model. So whatever their current model is, I would say, just go for that as a baseline uh, model of printer. They're in the neighborhood of about $700. You could probably find one for 500, just depending. Epson has a few different derivations of their models, but certainly, you know, be thinking about that. But even before you make that decision, I would I would challenge a photographer to answer themselves a couple of key questions, and and what that would be is to say, is this really for you? Is this something where you're going to take on the actual act of printing? Is this your is this your wheelhouse or where you want to enhance your craft? There are a couple of reasons why we would want to enhance our craft in this. First off, talk about paying attention to details. When you're printing, all of your sins that you had when making the photograph, processing the photograph, they absolutely get magnified and they come out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I can imagine. And that can sound scary. <laughs> But it really helps you become a detailed photographer, a detailed detailed at your craft where you're looking at every single piece of information. And we're going to talk about that in detail here. But where you end up understanding different ways of looking at your work, different ways of of interpreting your work and what you need to do to hone in that craft so that ultimate manifestation of the print is the best that it can be. And then, of course, are you going to even enjoy it? So not only do you have the, you know, the tenacity to stick through it, but then are you going to enjoy it? Is this going to be a process that you enjoy? Now, again, that's where I come back and I say, look, there's two ways you can go about this. I know there's some people, they just hate the act of printing, but they love having their work printed. And that's, we're going to talk about that too. So you can outsource the actual act of printing but you still need to know how to prepare that file and you still need to have all of your ducks in a row as it were, because it's really important to know what the device is that in my opinion, I should say, it's really important to know the specific device that you're going to be printing on and the parameters of that device. And again, we'll get into nitty gritty details on those items here in just a moment. But uh, if you're going to go out to a, a lab, you know, make sure they tell you, what kind of machine they're going to be using uh, on their website, what the parameters are for the file size and the resolution. That's the most important thing. Uh, and, and all those types of things is, is it all gets <laughs> in a big ball of clay that sometimes is just a big mess. It feels like, but that's why we're here and we're going to break it all down. 
Absolutely. And uh, now myself, uh, when I was getting my bachelor's in photography, we had to acquire a printer because we had to print our own physical uh, portfolio book for review. And um, right. I have one of the, I think mine's a Canon Pixima Pro 100, which I believe is also an obsolete model now. Um, and I can't remember the dimensions it handled. I know it was bigger than eight and a half by 11. I think it went up to. That's that's a 13 by 19 printer. That's what I thought. I was trying to remember yeah. off the top of my head. And it did a fabulous job. And I had a great time during that class doing the prints. And I did a bunch of prints afterwards for clients and stuff that wanted, you know, just something quick they could hang up in their house. And, um, and I enjoyed it, but then I got to the point where the inks ran out and I started pricing the inks and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to put <laughs> oh, yeah. this on the back burner for now and I'll have a lab print my stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. bad there. <laughs> I hear you there. When you look at the price of those inks, uh, these little tiny cartridges on these little printers, the cartridges are in the neighborhood of 13 milliliters. That's not a lot of ink. And they cost what thirty five dollars, twenty five dollars a piece. To, again, oh, depending yeah. on the exact yep. ink and manufacturer and and whatnot. But you know, and this will tempt some people too to say, well, hey, there's third party ink manufacturers. What about those? And personally, I'm not a proponent of, of those. Um, the biggest reason I think I was at a, I was conducting a workshop in. Denver, Colorado, a print workshop. It was a single day workshop. It was, I mean, we were running around like chickens with a head cut off. My goodness. It was a, a frenzied workshop, but we did learn a lot. And that of course is the point. And this was the type of thing too. I was doing it with a, a, um, a photo club. And so I made a deal with some of the members of the photo club as a, Hey, if you bring your printer, you know, we'll, we'll cut you a deal. And so we had 20 people, 18 people, uh, split amongst four or five printers. And we were just going crazy with it. But one of those people who brought their printer, they had third party inks and the colors were just coming out so different. And here's the thing about being really particular with what you're going to end up doing. And that is the person, it, it, the, the, the member that was there trying to get their prints, they were using, the color profile, and we'll talk about that in detail in a little bit here, for Canon inks, but then they were going to a whole, totally different ink set, and the colors were just totally wacky. But that, even that, that can be overcome. That's not that big of a deal. That, that can be overcome. You have to have a little more, little more effort to overcome that, but that can totally be overcome, and you can calibrate that. But then I was noticing, too, <clears throat> there's this... There's this um, phenomena called metamerism that I just don't like dealing with. Now, the printer that you were talking about, the 100, uh, that is virtually identical to the printer I have. The only difference between them is they use different ink sets. Mine's a pigment-based ink set. Yours is a dye-based ink set. Yeah. And anymore these days, there's virtually zero difference between the two ideas of ink sets. Historically, dye-based is not viewed as archival and longevity idea. But again, these days, it's, it's, they're doing so well with their different inks. It's not that big of a deal. But this is a pigment-based printer, and so she had the same idea, the same printer, and so she had pigment inks. The problem you have is when you have pigment inks, since those are little 
molecules of color, little globules, shall I say, of color floating around in this in, in this solution, depending on how thick the, it's laid on, but also depending on the color of the ink itself, you can get this bronzing effect. So if you take a print and you hold it at an angle to the light, it just kind of has this sheen, and we call it metamorphism, but again, bronzing, it's, it's all the same idea. And in this ink set that she was using, it was really noticeable, and I was just like, I wouldn't be able to handle that because it depends on which angle you're looking at the image, your color shifts because of this bronzing effect. And I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Now, certainly there's probably going to be third-party inks that can overcome that. <clears throat> but the other problem is you then have to worry about calibrating, custom calibration. And yes, I can totally do that. I have the device at work that is costs, what, $2,500 and allows me to calibrate custom everything. It's just, is that something I really want to do? And is that something I'm going to teach as it relates to a common practice? I think for me, that's where I draw the line and say, if you're doing a custom calibration, absolutely, I can help you do that. But is it worth it? Especially, is it worth it for someone who is starting out? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other reason why I've always steered people away from using third-party inks and toners is you don't know how good a quality they are. And what I mean by that is a lot of people don't realize that third-party inks and toners are frequently refurbished. So a lot of times oh, yeah. they take the original plastic container that the ink or toner was in, they break it apart, they, re they clean it, they refill it with ink or toner, and then they do their best to glue it back together or whatever they process they use. And I've actually seen, right. back when I had my computer shop, I had customers that would buy third-party inks for their inkjet printer at home and then they put them in and next thing you know the thing is leaking everywhere um and the same with the toners yeah. you know next thing you know they got toner dust flying in the air <laughs> and it's a real mess so i always <laughs> even though it's expensive i always recommend going with the manufacturer's ink cartridges and another side story real quick about inkjet printers for the home user you can go to, say, Walmart, and you can buy a Lexmark inkjet printer, not for printing photos, right. but for printing colored documents. And you can go to Walmart, and I would tell my computer store customers this all the time. You go to Walmart, you buy the printer. It comes with the ink for 35 bucks. When the inks run out, you might as well throw the printer out because the ink cartridges cost twice what the <laughs> printer cost when it came with the ink cartridges. So I had customers that would do Pretty that much, all the time. Yes. Yeah, they would buy one of those Lexmarks for 35 bucks, use it till the ink ran out, throw it out, and go buy another one because it was just cheaper to do that than it was to buy refilled cartridges. Yes, on this printer, when I buy a whole pack, since it's got, I should know this, it's 12 inks, I believe. Well, 10, 11 inks with a chroma optimizer and then also... It only uses 10 at any time because one of those inks, that's either black or photo black. So anyway, uh, it's got 12 ink cartridges in this in its kit. And that's $135. And so definitely that's not chump change. You know, that is that is an investment for sure. And when you're printing a big 13 by 19, that can really start to get expensive pretty quick, uh, especially if you're now if you're printing a very light and airy photograph, and all you ever do is photograph, you know, the the mist at the beach or whatever, and everything is very light and airy. You're gonna have a very low ink usage, 
But if you have really deep, dark, and saturated hues and all this other good stuff like we like to see in many of our photographs, then you're going to have a heavy ink usage and the cost per print just starts going up. Yeah. So just think though, when you're going to an online place though, they have all of that kind of calculated in their, in their process of, of just, you know, running all the costs. So you're paying for it anyway. It's just, they, they can be extremely efficient because they do so much of it. And when you're doing it yourself, yeah, it's, it's just not as efficient. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now we've, we've covered the printer aspect of it. And I know from my own experience in the past, and like I said, I'm not an expert. One of the next items that we need to delve into is creating your custom color profiles and how you accomplish that. Right. So here's where uh, here's where we need to look at this idea of ICC profiles. And so it's International Color Consortium is what that stands for. The most important thing, really, well, there's two most important things. Number one, get yourself a printer. If you're going to do it yourself, get yourself a printer that you can have these profiles downloaded by the paper manufacturers. And if anyone is interested in taking a look on my website, you can download. We'll have the links and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But you can actually download a free resource I have. It's called Printing Workflow Cheat Sheet. And it's under the free resources tab on my website. But we want to calibrate our monitor. That's the most important thing. And because if you're going to go off to a, you know, an online printer, you're going to take it to your friend down the street. It doesn't matter. If you don't have a calibrated monitor, you just have no assurance that what you're seeing is quality stuff. And then you want to be able to have a printer that these other paper manufacturers are going to support. So we have these fine art manufacturers, just a couple of them uh, that I'll name off, Cans and Infinity, Moab, and for some reason the other one is escaping me at the moment, Oh, Hanimule. Those are the top three paper manufacturers that I'll use when I'm just like, I want the ultimate, you know, um, with a slight preference. I really, there's one paper by Kansas infinity that I just love It's their barrier to photographique. Um, but you know, Canon or Epson, both, they make some really good papers and they will actually with their extra good papers, they will actually, uh, contract with these other paper manufacturers so they don't get them manufactured themselves they they go through these other paper manufacturers but then they private label it when you do that then i say definitely it's going to be super easy because their profiles are built into the system when you hit install on your computer to install the printer drivers you have those profiles built in now let's step back just a little bit more first off what is a profile a profile is a little piece of software that takes the color information, in this case, we're talking about for the printer, so it takes the color information from Photoshop or Lightroom, whichever one you're printing out of, and it translates it to what is from a known factor, a known element, because you have a certain setting going on in Photoshop, and the profile translates it and puts it out on print in the, in the printer because it knows what its characteristics are. When you do the same thing with your monitor, you're going to have this little thing that fits in the palm of your hand and it's going to go attached to the face of the monitor and you're going to be able to go through a process that, 
that they're going to give you, whether it's uh, Calibrite. It used to be called X-Rite, but now they're called Calibrite. They just changed in the last year or so. Uh, or Spider Software, they have, uh, that's that's another one, but I, I use the things, the items from X-Rite or Calibrite. <clears throat> and their software will lead you through the whole process. It's actually quite easy. However, if you hit the customize buttons, that's where you can really break the system. So my recommendation is always to say, look, just follow the industry standards and what they set up are the defaults and those work for a vast majority of the people. But when they don't work, that's when you need to start researching and say, look, this is not coming out. And usually what happens as our problems are your working environment, because the if you have bright windows and such like that, or lights above, uh, that will definitely affect your perception of what you're seeing on screen. And so here's what I do in my office. I have no windows in my office where I'm at right now. I'm in my home office. And I hate the fact that I have no windows, but I'm out here in a garage. I put up four walls and, you know, I have a, I have an office in the garage. But I have lights up here on the ceiling. But when I'm editing, I always have the one directly above me turned off. So it's a darker space. And then my walls, I was very careful when I went to Home Depot. I bought the most flattest or not, not necessarily flat, but the most neutral that I could find gray. So except for that far wall over there, I needed some kind of color. So that's orange, but it's just a very boring room. And as far as the color and, and everything else is concerned, so it's dark ish and it's really boring as far as the color are concerned. And that helps me interpret what I'm seeing on screen a whole lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize if they don't have uh, a color profile for their monitor and a color profile for the printer and paper they're using. You're going to look at the photo in Lightroom or Photoshop, and then you're going to print it. You're going to be like, okay, this looks totally alien compared to what I was looking at on my screen. What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. And we have, uh, there's also a certain level of expectation that we need to have as well, because certainly your monitor is backlit. Your print is not there's going to be differences there. And what we're looking for is, number one, think about where you're going to be previewing your image. Try and replicate or looking at your image. You know, are you making an image that's a gift, let's say, for your parents? You know, let's say they're retired. I'm, I'm taking my own example into, into consideration. My folks are retired. They live down in Idaho. And... If I wanted to gift them a print, what I would be thinking is, where is that going to be shown in their house? What can I do to replicate that as best as possible or to at least consider that when I'm judging the print here in my office? And that is something I think we're getting, that we're putting the cart before the horse though, because that's something that's kind of after the fact when you're judging the print. But that's the kind of thing when I'm uh, in continuing about my office here at home, when I'm judging the print, I'm going to turn that light on that's above me. That's currently off. I have two lights in my ceiling. I'm going to turn the other one on because I need that extra light to judge what the print looks like, because that's what it's going to look like, hopefully. And, you know, whether they have a window or whether they, wherever they are with my folks and where they're going to put it in their house, I just want to have a better understanding of what that print hopefully is going to look like once it's in its final hanging spot kind of a thing 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And then the other thing to consider, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, when you are printing a photograph that, say, your parents are going to display in their home, you're giving it to them as a gift or whatever, you have to make sure you consider, like you said, the environment the photo is going to be in. Um, so is right. it going to be hanging on right. a wall where direct sunlight's going to hit it frequently? Because if it is, then that's going to have an effect over time on the paper and the inks that were used, correct? Yes, and I would always try and recommend, if, if at all possible, we don't always have control over where our things are hung, but definitely don't let the direct sunlight hit it. But even indirect light could have an effect over time. That's not something that I would say I would be getting too bent out of shape over because it's just something I really can't control. That's where the notion of having pigment-based inks versus dye-based inks might still give you a slight edge. But if there's anyone who wants to do some research on this, look up Wilhelm Research. They do all sorts of testing, uh, you know, time testing on the longevity of inks and such like that. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be a great resource for the listeners. We'll have to make sure we put that in the show notes. So we've touched on getting a printer, setting up a profile, and uh, and and considering the paper that you're going to use. So where do we go from here? What is the next step in the printing process to get the final yeah, product? Yeah, so I want, I want to talk just a tiny bit more about monitors. And we're going to bring in another hot topic. When I was at another workshop, this was September 2020, I was doing a print workshop in the Palouse. And uh, boy, we must have talked for two hours. I'm trying to think here. It must have been at least two hours where we talked just on profiles and all the different nuances, uh, or excuse me, color spaces and all the different nuances of what to expect. Now, in a nutshell, there's a couple of things we need to be thinking about. First off, I'm going to assume most of us are using Lightroom. It doesn't really matter which uh, software program you utilize because we're in the raw, uh, we're, we're hopefully shooting in the raw uh, format. And so what happens is Lightroom will use a color space that we call it. And that color space is called Profoto. All that is is a definition of what colors actually are or what they can be i should say it's a mapping on a graph as it were as to what type of what type of color you're able to reproduce with a given color space now this is a huge color space profoto is the largest it even represents or it has in its color space some items that are defined that we just cannot even see because we're human we can't see these things but they stretched out the definition of blue and green to a point to where it does encapsulate even more blues and greens than we can see otherwise. And so with this idea in mind, and you, and I invite anyone to look up a, um, I invite anyone to look up the, just do an images search on color spaces and you're going to get this horseshoe shaped looking item that will uh, show you different items and the the rectangle or the, the triangle keeps getting bigger and bigger as you go out into a larger color space. So you want to have a monitor that can have hopefully as much color representation as possible. Well, there's another color space called Adobe RGB. That's the next one down. 
And then there's another color space called sRGB. That's a really tight, that's really small comparatively color space. And so you just want to know, first off, what does your monitor support? And then secondly, how can you take that into consideration for what you're doing? My monitors, the screens that I use, actually are about 98 to 99% of sRGB. So that's even, basically it's a sucky monitor, <laughs> but I'm still able to use it and I'm still able to have it do what I need it to do as far as getting good quality prints out of it. Because once you have a little bit of experience and you start to crack this nut a little bit, you can go a little further because the printer depending on your paper, your color spaces. And so this is where it really becomes a mind bender. And so if I'm saying the printer can support a color space that my monitor cannot support, does that mean I'm going to get prints out of my printer that are not possible to reproduce on my screen? And I'm saying, yes, that's possible. So I have a video on my YouTube channel about this. And I can probably send you the link, Liam. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because this is such a a, a mind-bending type experience where I just want people to be able to go through all of it. And when I show you in that video, I actually have a graph. I'm using a utility, the ColorSync utility on the Macintosh system that's built in. And it will show you the overlays of two color spaces and where they mesh and what's on the, you know, what one color space will represent while the other one doesn't. And so I do a, a fairly detailed job of describing all that stuff. So that's just an extra resource to say, look, even though your print doesn't match your screen, this is where I encourage photographers to say, you know what, I'm going to recalibrate what's important because it might be that the print is actually more accurate simply because you're hamstrung based on what your computer screen is able to even give you and able to even do. Yeah. Now, uh, staying on the monitors for a minute, you raised, yeah. uh, you brought something that popped up in the back of my mind as you were talking about monitors. And I've always heard, and I don't know if you've heard this or not, which is why I'm throwing it at you that if you are going out to buy a monitor for your computer, especially if you're going to be doing your own prints, I have heard that the most color accurate monitors are the ones that have what they call an IPS panel. Is that true or is that hogwash? No, there is something to that. Um, the thing about the IPS panels, in-plane switching is what that stands for. Correct. Um, the thing about those screens is or not those screens, um, you have more consistent color throughout the entire panel as you're looking at it. And what I mean by more consistent is based on the angle that you're looking at it. So an IPS panel, if it were to be, you know, straight on to me versus maybe tilted 15 degrees, the color will be effectively the exact same color as far as what I'm able to perceive. When you have a non-IPS, that color may shift it may not. Depends on which direction you angle the monitor. So it is definitely a good idea to get the IPS monitor. If that's something you're in the market for, be sure you're looking up IPS and you get that because you just have more consistency. And then I also think, too, right in front of me now, I have two screens. 
And so the 24 inches, and so the middle is right smack in the middle. So I have to look slightly to the left or slightly to the right, depending on which screen I'm looking at. But the further away that gets from my axis of vision, I have a greater angle that I'm looking at it, but I have consistent color across the entire panel because that is the the IPS is, is helping me out in that case. That's what I thought. And that's why I wanted to bring up that topic, because the one thing I already knew for a fact is Apple's uh, iMacs, which are the yeah. all-in-one computer that's built into a monitor. They have always, at least for as long as I can remember since the technology has been out, they've always right. used IPS panels. And I knew there right. had to be a reason for that. And given the fact that you had tons of Hollywood studios and big printing companies and big media companies were all using Macs. And especially that we're doing any kind of, of post-production printing and stuff like that. And I knew there had to be a reason for it. So when I, when I first heard that from, uh, as a matter of fact, it was when I lived in Atlanta and I was at uh, Micro Center. And I yeah. was talking to a guy there. I was looking for a new monitor for myself. I wanted a second monitor for the 27-inch iMac I had at the time. And he's like, well, if you got a 27-inch iMac, then you want your second monitor to also be an IPS panel. Because Absolutely. if not, you're gonna you're gonna get some funkiness going on when you're looking at one screen versus the other, and depending on what angle you're at. So that's why I thought that we should bring that up because that is a key factor. And I don't want people to think that the IPS panels are like ridiculously more expensive because oh no, I, I got a great deal on mine. You just want to make sure that when you're shopping for a monitor, and I don't know if you can get IPS panels at Walmart. I haven't looked. I know you can at Best Buy. And if you're right. lucky enough to be in one of the 26 states, I think it is, that Micro Center's in, they always have them. All you got to do is either ask the customer service or salesperson or just look at the box. Because most yeah. of the time, like Samsung and all the big manufacturers, if it's got an IPS panel, they'll tell you that right on the outside of the box. Right. You know, and the name brand, some people may, might think, you know, what about name brands? Mine or Dell? Uh, you know, it, probably some of the at the time they were decent but now they would be classified as probably some of the cheapest panels you could buy up in my office at the school i've got an lg uh, but it's an ultra wide with a little bit of curl curve to it which eh, it's okay but it's it's not all that um benq makes some fantastic ones and they're gonna also you know benq and viewsonic they have some lines of monitors where they'll say they're pre-calibrated and such like that and I'm always like, <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> now, they are calibrated to factory specifications, and they are guaranteed to deliver a certain type of color and color accuracy, et cetera. But that doesn't mean they're calibrated to your system and your environment. Calibration means a little more than just saying it's going to deliver me perfect color out of my computer because they don't know what color your computer is delivering Every piece of hardware is going to have its own little differences, and you'll want to have that device on your screen reading the color as it goes through its process so you can then say, yep, it's calibrated. Uh, but again, if, if you have problems where it's just still not coming out, then you have to go look at getting away from industry standards where you might have to make the screen a little bit brighter. Maybe it's a little bit darker. Maybe you need to shift the color temp one way or the other. There's these things called white points. Uh, industry standard for the photography industry is what they call a D65. So that means a white point of 6,500 Kelvin. Uh, the industry standard for the graphic arts industry, I work in both. Um, so the D, uh, D50 is the 
standard for the graphic arts industry. Why do we have two different standards? I can't tell you, but why that's the case, but, uh, Go with what is in your industry, but then feel free afterwards to go ahead and shift that white point. If it's just a little too cool, if it's just a little too warm, that white point is your friend with what you're going to shift it one way or the other. And then also in those iMacs, turning off the the thing in the system preferences where it will do a night shade or a night shift or whatever, turn that junk off because that's just going to ruin your color calibration. And then also Mac... I can only speak to Mac because that's what I've been using for the last 20 plus years. Um, both their notebooks and their iMacs basically are the same panel, uh, but they have a color space that's called the P3 color space, and that's nestled between the sRGB and the uh, and the Adobe RGB. So it's kind of nice to have that slightly better color actually coming out of your notebooks. When you're on a PC notebook, if it's within the last two years, I would say you probably have a fairly decent screen unless you paid less than $500 for your computer. You know, if you paid more than $500, you probably have a decent screen that's calibratable and you're going to get good stuff. But I have seen in some of these workshops that I've been running, people bring these really old dinosaurs of computers and the screens are just atrocious. And I'm just like, I don't care how hard we try, that sucker is not calibratable. And then we have to look at the histogram exclusively for knowing what color is truly in the file. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those really old school panels that oh. <laughs> if you looked at them from one angle, it's like the entire picture disappears. Oh yeah. <laughs> you had it's to sit sad. straight in front of them in order to see anything yeah. on them. Oh my God. I, I can't Very... remember at one time we thought those were good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, like I said, the big thing is the IPS panel. And I tell students when they ping me about this, I'm like, listen, just like when you're shooting in an indoor studio, You've got to have the right environmental conditions. You've got to right. have a slightly darker environment. You don't want any loud colors because they're going to cast into what you're seeing on the screen, just like when you're taking a portrait. If you've got bright orange on one wall, well, guess what? You're When you fire off your strobes, that orange is going to splash into the subject, into their clothes, into their face. And then exactly right. you know, they're going to come out looking like an alien to an extent. You're going to be like, yep. what, what the heck? Okay, why did they come out looking like a pumpkin? <laughs> they, they sure can. And that's why, you know, like I had just describing my home office, that wall is bright orange, but it's way over there. Now, way over there is maybe 10 feet away from where I sit. But still, with the, with the diminished lighting and whatnot, it's not affecting me so strongly when I'm looking this direction, and that's what's important. Absolutely. Now, the, the next steps, you know, when we're thinking about moving in the next direction, there's three different categories, I guess we can say, of the process that I like to use when I am going forward. Okay, you know, I've got my hardware set up, I've got my camera or, you know, my, my images in the computer and such. Uh, when we first started talking, I talked about process, you know, the idea of following this process and how it's largely identical for whether or not you're going to print your own or whether you're going to outsource your printing. So the first thing I do, I like to call capture processing. Then there is creative processing and then there's output processing. And even in output processing, uh, 
there's so much that's identical. Again, whether you're going to print your own or you're going to outsource, there's so much that's identical between the two sets. So this notion of capture processing is all about assessing the technical quality of the file or the, of the image, what have you, and determining even if it's worth it to spend the time to go forward with it. Because there are definitely some images. As I'm going through my images that I'm looking at <clears throat> for this last shoot that I did, I've got some images. I'm looking at it, and I'm drilling into the uh, pixel peeping. You know, a lot of times people say, don't be a pixel peeper, whatever. I'm like, I'm sorry. When I'm going to go print, I am a pixel peeper. <laughs> There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But it's the first thing I do, and once I'm satisfied, I just move on. It's great. So I have a lot of these things applied immediately when I import into Lightroom, and that is lens corrections. If Adobe has my camera and lens, I should just say the lens, but anyway, if they have my lens in their database of different lens corrections, I'm going to go ahead and apply it. Certainly, that's always going to be something in the back of my mind that says, should I remove that? Is there something going on in this image to where I need to remove the lens correction? I know I can go and toggle it off, but nine and a half times out of 10, I want that lens correction applied. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll, I, I will also apply chromatic aberration corrections because as good as our lenses are from Canon and whoever else, we're still going to have some lenses that have this chromatic aberration. And that's the inability of the lens to focus all colors of wavelengths of light in to the exact same point. Now, in the center of the lens, it's not an issue because the light is traveling straight. But when you're, especially in a wide-angle lens, you have the opportunity to, you'll see this color fringing starting to happen. And so the software can correct for that. And I always do that. I will then check my histogram. The biggest thing I'm looking at there is, do I have detail where I need the detail? So this is just a quick check. Is it going to work? And as I'm going through my waterfall shots, I have plenty of shots where I slammed the histogram way far up against the right side. It's not clipping off, but it's really far to the right. And if that's the only shot I have of that subject, I'll work with it. But I usually like to have it down just a hair. I like to see it peak just a little bit away from that right-hand side because what I can do in Lightroom, I can take the highlights slider to the negative, and I can take the white slider to the positive just a little bit. And basically what I do is I'm when I do that, I'm increasing the contrast in those highlights. And that's a great way in my opinion, to process waterfalls or clouds or anything else that's really bright. So I'll check the histogram and I'll select the right image. If I have multiples to choose from, I'll make sure I'm selecting the right image to make that work. Certainly look at my white balance correction if I need to. And then finally, sharpness. Uh, now, the sharpness, this is, I, I want to really impress upon the idea I'm very, <clears throat> what's the word? I'm very constricted in what I'm talking about with sharpness on the capture processing idea. In Lightroom, there's this, uh, there's this tab called Detail. And in the Detail tab, we have Sharpening and Noise Reduction. And under Sharpening, the default amount that Adobe gives us is 40 I always backscale that to 25. For the longest time, Adobe had 25. About three, I think, or so years ago, maybe five years ago, they increased it to 40. And I, to me, I just think that's too much. Yeah, I couldn't figure out why they did that because I thought 25 was perfect. 
yeah, 25, I, I find to be really good. But then the radius is set to one. That's the default. It has been for as long as I can remember. And then the detail, their default is 25. <clears throat> but I like it set to 75. Now, what the detail does, this is a little bit different than what we're going to talk about sharpening and the output processing is completely different. The, that detail slider, its whole point and purpose is to counteract or to get rid of, however you want to call it, the presence of that low-pass filter or the anti-aliasing filter, as, as it's also called. Now, most of our cameras today still have it. Uh, your Fuji X-Trans cameras do not have it. Uh, some Pentax, some Nikons, they don't have it. Uh, but most of our cameras still have this low-pass filter, and so we can slide that up. It's also called, you may have heard a term called deconvolution sharpening. Yeah, That's what this is. So when I'm looking at that, I like 75. Sometimes I'll go ahead and take it up to 100, but the, really the difference between 75 and 100 is like virtually nothing. But I like 75 because when I'm pixel peeping, if I still have a problem with this image, this detail slider will not fix it at all. If I have a technical issue with the image, camera shake, it's just blurry because I was misfocused or, or you know, subject movement or anything like that, this detail slider will not fix it. But if I have something where it's influenced by that anti-aliasing filter, this detail slider will fix it, and I'll get just a half an ounce more of sharpening out of it. And so uh, I like that little extra sharpening on a pixel-by-pixel -pixel basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with you there. Um, I don't know why, like I said a moment ago, they changed some of the default yeah. settings in Lightroom. I didn't like it. I had a muscle memory, so I take them all back, back to where they yeah. used to be because that's the way I like them as well. Yeah. And then the masking, I leave at zero unless there's something special that I need to make sure I don't apply any sharpening to. But if you hold option when you're sliding that slider, you'll be able to see exactly where it's applied. And this would be the kind of thing where if I had a very clear blue sky and for some reason, let's say I had to shoot at, say, 1600 ISO, that's what I'm throwing in the masking so I don't sharpen the digital noise. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The next item down the list, once we have our capture processing, the capture processing usually goes pretty quick because most of these items, they're just automated in Lightroom. All I have to do is check the histogram, check the white balance, and those are just part of our normal, you know, is this a good image or not, technically. And then I just zoom into 100% and make sure that the sharpness check says, yep, this is going to be a good image when it prints because I have good, solid sharpness and whatnot, good detail coming through, the detail that I want anyway. And then we go into the creative processing. And this is where it's up to you as a photographer. What do you want to do? Have at it. <laughs> do you want to bring in multiple images and composite something? Do you want to just do minimal items? For me, I really like what Ansel Adams said. He was asked what is his intent and purpose with what he does when, when he shoots. And he wants to uh, showcase, he wants to convey what he saw and felt. Those are the key words, saw and felt. So uh, I, I want to be honest with what I saw, but I also want to be honest with how this scene has, has impressed me. And so that's where I have a little bit of freedom I'm going to take a little bit of freedom when I'm processing my images. Now, does that mean I go, you know, 
super duper crazy this way and that way. Not usually because that's not where I tend to, you know, have my fun. But when I know I'm going to make a good print and the like, you know, I have that goal in mind. It kind of gives me that motive, motivation to keep moving forward. But, you know, think about your exposure adjustments, saturation, your clarity and texture sliders, your adjustment masks now, as we call it in Lightroom, your creative sharpening decisions. Here's the key though, you know, with creative sharpening, we, we finally ran into this item because you're, we're going to visit sharpening again in just a moment. We already took a look at a certain type of sharpening. Now we're talking about another type of sharpening. Usually for me, I can achieve what I want creatively using that clarity slider because it does kind of sort of treat the subject like uh, like a sharpening filter, but it's not. It's totally not. Uh, so I don't want people to rely purely on that. Uh, there is a sharpening slider otherwise in Lightroom. Um, like if you are on an adjustment brush uh, mask br uh, item, you have a sharpening item in there that you could utilize if you want to do selective sharpening, selective blurring. Uh, go ahead and use that to the point where it, where it looks good, if, if that's what needs to happen for it to look good, that will find edges, whereas clarity doesn't, it's not programmed to find edges. Clarity is different for each image. It uses a little bit of quasi AI. And so a clarity setting on one picture will not be, will not give you the same results as another picture. So it's really about the subject at hand and the lighting that you have and all that stuff. Uh, the texture slider, that's relatively new in Lightroom. That does hunt for edges. And so if you, if it's edges, it's, if it's fine, little minute, fine edge detail that you need to bring out, you either, if you're going to do it universally to your image, it's the texture slider. If you want to do it selectively to little parts here and there, then it's your adjustment brushes and you can affect texture in there, or there's a sharpness in there as well that will achieve largely the same thing, but technically it's, it's some, some difference under the hood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned a moment ago, we got the two types of sharpening. So you got the sharpening as you're looking at the image in Lightroom. But then the next one that I'm certain you're going to talk about is your output sharpening for right. when you're getting that image ready to be printed. That's exactly right. So we had, we started with our capture processing, which had a sharpness check. We then do our creative processing, which if you need to selectively sharpen or selectively blur certain areas, I will also do a process that I like to call light shaping. And that's where, when I do this light shaping, along with this whole notion of, you know, am I going to sharpen a little bit of here, a little and a little less there, blur, you know, selectively, uh, I will guide the viewer's eye around the image by how I apply that adjustment brush in Lightroom. And, I'll, you know, selectively brighten something. Subtlety is key for sure, but that can be a way to guide the, the, the viewer around your image. And then, of course, anything in Photoshop that you want to do in Photoshop. But now we're going to look at this next idea of output sharpening. And when we go to this notion of output sharpening, I'm a huge fan myself of going to Photoshop and only doing my work in Photoshop. Now, if we have any listeners out there that utilize um, Capture One, I actually really like their print module that they have. It works a little bit differently than what we're going to be talking about, but it, it achieves the exact same results. 
So they have uh, by different by working differently. They have slightly different terminologies, and I can't remember what those are just yet, right now. But we have exactly the same results uh, coming out of it, and that's why I like to use Photoshop. We get perfect control, I guess is the best way to put it, over exactly what's happening with our image and what's what's going on in the in the whole process overall. A lot of people want to just utilize the print module in Lightroom. And I say, if it's working for you, it's a very quick way to make it work. The problem is I don't have the control over the exact process of, of the sharpening, the output sharpening, because they have a low, medium, and high level of sharpening. What does that even mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and Lightroom is not resolution dependent. You have the resolution, you have the pixels that are in your file because that's what your camera delivered, but Lightroom is otherwise resolution independent. It doesn't care what your resolution is. It deals with ratios when you're dealing with the crop tool. When it comes to printing, it's all about the pixels and it's all about the overall resolution. And when you are looking to... When you're looking to make that work, you just have to have let me let me back up. I have found that it's better to think about it more linearly in a linear fashion than try and get messed up with whatever can whatever can else happen when you're doing things a different way. And so here's the process that I encourage using that I want to explain why I like this process. So when you take a, a an image by default, now if you've gone into your your preferences settings in Lightroom and you've changed things, I can't speak to that. Or if you're camera raw user, whatever, the, this, these are the defaults. When you take, let's say you cropped an image to eight by ten in Lightroom, okay, that's just a ratio in eight eight units by ten units. There's no inches, there's no centimeters, there's no nothing involved there. It's just a ratio. When you open that into Photoshop. It's going to give you those pixels, whatever those pixels were straight off your sensor, whatever that count is, it's going to take that and it's going to assign a resolution of 240 pixels per inch. Now, here's a question for you, Liam. Have you ever wondered why they chose 240 pixels per inch? Yeah, I have, but I didn't really dive into it a whole lot. So that's why the other reason why you're a good resource for stuff like this. Now, this is my theory. I, I haven't substantiated this with any research or pretty much anything else under the sun, okay? Uh, but this is my theory on that idea. The reason is that 240 pixels per inch is an even multiplier into whichever printer you're printing to. So if you're going to print on an Epson, most Epson printers are 2880 pixels or dots, I should say, because when we go to a, the physical product, it's dots per inch. When we're dealing in the computer, it's pixels per inch. So your your Epson is 2880. Well, you take 240, multiply that by 12, you get 2880. So it's an even multiplier. Yep. All right. Your Canon printers are 1200. And so you take your 240, you multiply it by 5, you get your 1200. So it's an even multiplier that has still enough resolution to give you a really fine detailed print without needing to worry about some kind of rounding error 
when it comes to assigning your pixels to those dots. Yeah, exactly. Cause and I, it was like two thirty-five, and it's like, yeah, how okay? How are you going to get that? <laughs> how are you going to get that up to twelve hundred? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this is where it starts to deviate just a little bit. Are you doing your own printing, or are you going to an online lab? If you're going to go to an online lab, find out what their resolution is, and you're going to go for that. Now, here's the thing. In transferring from Lightroom to Photoshop, who cares? Because you're going to throw away some pixels or you're going to interpolate and create some pixels if you're going to go really big. So that initial translation, who cares? But what I want to do in Photoshop, I want to set it to the exact perfect right size that that print will be. So if it's going to be 8 by 10 inches physically, I'm going to go ahead and go into the image image size and I'm going to type in 8 by 10. Maybe I'll use my crop tool because maybe I brought in the image without any cropping and I'll bring it into Photoshop and I'll say, okay, Photoshop, uh, here's the crop tool. I've set it eight by 10 at 240 pixels per inch in this case. Since I'm on a Canon, incidentally, I could also do 300 because that's also an even multiplier. And because I shoot with a Canon R5, I've got more resolution than I'll ever need for doing an eight by 10. If I'm going on an Epson, I want to set that then, uh, if I want to go higher resolution for some reason, I want to set that to about 360, because that's also an even multiplier. But the 240, I have had super good results with a 240 pixels per inch on these photo printers. I did a test, because the Epson, so those folks who have an Epson printer, they'll see in their print dialog box, there is a high resolution mode for printing, where you can print... At, um, your image can be 720 pixels per inch. Number one, you got to have the pixels to actually make it worth it. You don't, it wouldn't make sense, let's say, if you were to interpolate, and that is to cause Photoshop to create the information out of thin air. It does a good job, but to create that information out of thin air, to give you that 720, that, you know, you, you want to have the high resolution. So like, uh, Liam, on your Fuji, camera. You've got the high resolution. If you're on an R5, you've got enough resolution. You could do an 8x10 at 720, no problem. But if you had, but say, I, a, a T2i or something yeah. that's only like 12 megapixels, then it's not going to look good at 720. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not even worth it. In fact, yeah. I'm going to say it's not even worth it unless possibly you were doing a black and white image. Maybe you could still have an, a, enough fidelity coming through. Because what happens is... When you take that extra high resolution, you are assigning your pixels to a certain number of dots on the printer. And when you have more resolution in there, the amount of dots you're assigned for each pixel is smaller, is less. And so your color fidelity actually fades. You don't have as rich color possibility possibilities when you do that. And so I've done a test and I looked at it and I was like, well, you know, yes, it's really, really, really close. But you know, when I take off my glasses and I look at it really close, which you never do, that's not how we enjoy our images, but I could see a difference. And I was like, nah, I'm going to stick with a lower resolution because my file size is lower and I get better color anyway, just on a technical scale, I get better color because I'm not trying to uh, eke out all of that extra fine detail of, of what can come out. So 
yeah, 240 for most of it. If you if you're a, a portrait shooter and you've got some really fine details in the hair that just needs to be tack on perfection, then what I would say is if you're on a Canon, up it to 300. If you're on an Epson, up it to 360 uh, pixels per inch, and you're going to get a minor benefit, a minor bump in sharpness detail because you have the higher resolution and your subject calls for it. But the, the bottom line that I'm looking for is to say, look, create a file in Photoshop that is the exact same size as what your output is going to be on the printer and get it at that proper resolution that you need. 240 is a really good resolution because it doesn't matter if you're on Epson or Canon. It's a really good resolution because it's an even multiplier for what that resolution of the dots per inch is on the printer. And now let's talk about why is that even an issue? Why do I want it to be an even multiplier? Because I may not have said this to begin with, what I'm printing, especially when I get to this stage, I'm extremely diligent and extremely picky. Because if I mess up, I want to be able to look back at my process and know exactly which parameter needs to be altered in order to fix the problem. If it's a creative problem, you know, I go back to Lightroom, I do it in Photoshop, wherever I did that issue, that I did that thing, and I fix the problem. But if it's an output problem, it's in Photoshop, I know exactly where to go and exactly what to do. Yeah, absolutely. So we definitely want to make sure we match up our resolutions. You don't want to be trying to set your resolution higher than what the, the the raw files from your camera give you, especially if you have an older camera. And that's not to pick on anybody that does have an older camera because that you know that was all they could afford. They're a photography student. They're doing it as a hobby or whatever the case may be. But you can't stretch your pixels out, so to speak, well, when, you, when you're printing it. It's not going to be a good thing, at least. There are limits, but there are reasons for doing that. And we do have some amazing software that helps us. So Topaz uh, Resize, I think it's called, they do an amazing job of upsizing your images and getting some really good sharp results when you upsize or interpolate data into your images. And so if you have to, for instance, when I took that class, I was talking about that class I took through Savannah College of Art and Design uh, on printing. I was shooting with the original Canon 5D. That's 12.8 megapixels. And I wanted to print this image. Uh, came out about 20 by 30 or 24 by 36, somewhere in there. And there's no way that you have enough megapixels when you're enlarging that big. So yeah. you have to interpolate yep. in Photoshop. And so for those reasons, sure, if you have to go larger, there's no other way to go about it. You have to do it. You just have to also really be looking at your details and make sure that you know your, your capture processing delivers you just an awesome file that can actually work. Or in the case of what was this image. <laughs> I actually had some motion going through because I was in India, uh, hanging out the side, out the window of a, of a truck, of a van, of minivan. We were on our way from Delhi to Agra to go to the Taj Mahal. And I'm just literally just motor drive shooting as I go by. And I'm looking out the, the windshield ahead of me. And there's this, this family that's literally just living right along the side of the road. 
And I was like, hey, if this looks very interesting, as I'm going by shooting. And I hardly thought anything of it until I got home. And I was like, ooh, that's a really cool, you know, all these different things, the tree coming up, the backlight, the, just all these things just coming into it. And I was like, that would make a great black and white. And, uh, and then I just went into Photoshop and I just brought out all these details and doing all these things and all this other manipulation to guide the eye where I wanted a viewer to look. And it turned out to be a fantastic print because we don't get nose to image, you know, and look at all these sins that are happening. Like I mentioned before, too, all your sins will come out when you print. Just depends how close you stand, though. Yeah, exactly. So because I knew the average viewer would be at least five feet away, possibly more, it's the size and the breadth of the image that's going to cause you to have this impact. And I was like, I'm going to be fine with it. Even though it's 12.8 megapixels, I'm going to be fine with it. And uh, it turned out just gorgeous, just beautiful. Absolutely love it. And I have it, I think it's wrapped up over there in the corner of the office here. I have it wrapped so it doesn't get all damaged with dust and whatnot. But you can certainly go larger. It's just with that idea of, of using Epson's 720 uh, printing method, I say it's useless because you're, you're, you're just using pixels for no reason because you're going to lose out on your color fidelity. Your color is just not going to be as rich when you do that. Um, and again, at a smaller print, it, it just doesn't make any sense to, to do something like that unless you have someone that you know is going to use a magnifying glass to enhance the details, and then you want them to have a good experience of enhancing those details, you know, whatever. That's just not what we get into, so not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, and I've always heard the rule of thumb is most people, when they look at a, a printed photograph, you know, hanging on the wall or whatever, average distance, by habit, we all stand and look at them is usually about six feet. Right. And this is the beautiful thing about Capture One. This is what they do. Now, if they've updated it, it's been a, a couple of years since I've output an image for print in Capture One, but they will ask you, you know, when you're looking to resize the image, what is your viewing distance? And that is what you want to do for the output sharpening that we're going to talk about right now, because it varies one setting but Capture One is saying, okay, you're going to view it from seven feet away. Well, then you need this setting. And they don't tell you what that setting is. <laughs> That's why I can like, <clears throat> but at least they have that ability to modify the sharpness setting according to what your viewing distance is. Yeah, and I believe that is still in there. I haven't used their print module a whole lot, but I have Capture, I have Capture One Pro 21, and I'm waiting nice. for the 2022 version to come out, uh, sure. which will be shortly. And uh, I've always liked that, the fact that it does ask you, you know, what distance are you going to be viewing this printed file right. from? And then, like you said, it makes adjustments accordingly. Yeah, what it's doing is it's a, it's adjusting the radius on the next settings that we're going to talk about. So when you're in Photoshop, all right, let's, let's kind of backtrack just a hair, just a review, just a hair. You're in Lightroom. You've done your things there. You've come into Photoshop. Maybe you will do more creative processing in Photoshop. Maybe not. If you're going to do more creative processing in Photoshop, then definitely save that file in its original resolution. And I call it at the end of the file name, Print Master, because I've got some changes in here, but it's not sized properly for printing. So I call it my print master. Then all of those creative changes are done. I then will crop it down 
even flatten the image if I have to, just for simplicity's sake, but crop it down to the size we're going to print it. Now, for purposes of this conversation, I'll just use 8 by 10, but it could be any size that you want to do. So 8 by 10 at 240 pixels per inch. I then take that layer in Photoshop, and I will actually convert it to a smart object. Now, the reason I want to do that is because I can then apply a filter to it, and I can just go back to that original information, and I can reassign that filter to whatever settings I want, and then I can dial in perfection without having to process the image all over again. When, when Photoshop, when Adobe gave us uh, smart objects in Photoshop, it was just like, amazing because we can just go back and say, look, what it's done is it's packaged up the file information. It's tucked it away for safekeeping, but it's going to give us a representation of it. And filters is one of those things that we can manipulate after the fact, so to speak, but we still have that original information unsharpened. So I'm going to usually apply the unsharp mask filter. Now in Photoshop, there's also the smart sharpen and I love the smart sharpen for certain photos, but the uh, the unsharp mask is extremely simple to use. There's three settings in the unsharp mask. You have the amount, the radius, and the threshold. And so the amount, here's basically my starting points for all images. And this is where, again, I say you print it, and then you're going to assess, and then you're going to make changes, and you're going to print again, and you're going to dial in to perfection. So by default, I want to start with the amount setting to 100 plus or minus, you might, as you print more, you might start to be like, you know what, 120 is usually more my ending point, so I'm just going to start there in the future. So whatever. If this is your first time, I'm just giving you a number to start with. And then your radius, this is very important because this is that whole idea of eliminating the rounding errors. I've been talking about I really like to have a resolution for my file that is not that is an even multiplier of the dots print I have in my printer. And so here's where that if you don't have that, you then are requiring the print driver to make this calculation, which again, they do a good job, but I just want to eliminate every facet of a possibility of any types of problems coming through. And so this is just part of that obscene pickiness coming through. One half this is your setting for radius, one half of 1% of your resolution. So if your resolution is 240 pixels per inch, 1% of that is 2.4. Half of that is 1.2. Now, what does radius do? Radius takes a pixel by pixel analysis. And if sharpening is to be applied, it will stretch itself out one pixel and then it'll apply 20% to the next pixel out beyond that. So, because you can't have 0.2 of a pixel, it just, that just doesn't work. But that's basically what it's gonna end up doing. Well, how much sharpening is it gonna do? Whatever 100% means. We don't need to know exactly what 100% means. We just know it does a certain amount, and that's our starting point. If we want more of it, we're going to go in and change the amount. If we want less of it, we change the amount to less. But then that third value, so the amount, yeah, the strength of sharpening. The radius is how far from that defined edge the sharpening effect is applied. All right, how do we define an edge? That's where the threshold comes in. So when I have these two pixels sitting side by side, how the threshold defines how different do those neighboring pixels need to be 
to be considered an edge. And so this is kind of like masking in Lightroom. When we first talked about the capture processing with masking, it'll apply because masking is usually set to zero. It applies to every single pixel. But here for output sharpening, we don't want it to apply to every single pixel. So I say start with a threshold amount of between eight and 10. Take your pick to start there. And what that will do is it will allow you to not say sharpen the sky at all for output sharpening, but it will allow you to sharpen those details of that twig, that leaf, that person, whatever those details are, you can do your output sharpening for basically those subjects that have detail like that. And then you save your file. So in case something happens, you know, you're good, you have it saved. Uh, and then you start printing. Okay, well, now the question uh, I have for you real quick there, because I know I'm going to get asked by some of these students. When you save the file out of Photoshop to print, what format are you going to use? Is best to use? I usually use the TIFF format because depending on how law, how big I'm going, uh, TIFF has a, a, top, a higher top end on the file size. Not that I usually hit that, but PSD format is uh, limited to 2 gigs. TIFF is 4 gigs. Uh, either of those are limited to 30,000 pixels in either dimension. And then uh, if you're going to go bigger than that, you got to do the PSB format. It's Photoshop's large format, which since we're printing everything and managing everything in Photoshop, it doesn't really matter. But you're not going to be able to bring that PSB very effectively back into Lightroom because there are some limitations on the file size limits that you can manage in Lightroom. So that can be a little bit cantankerous. Yeah. So when you're even when you're going to be sending it out to uh, a, a photo lab to print it for, or a print lab to print it for you, you definitely want to stick with TIFF. Yeah. So if you're going to go out to a lab, uh, you're you're definitely going to be wanting to process all of these items. You're going to want to convert the image yourself to sRGB because 90% of online labs want you to use the sRGB color space. And I would still, and this is where, again, look at my video on YouTube that talks about this notion of the, the, the color space for your printer versus what you're viewing on screen. You can kind of get yourself into trouble the same way because by default, when you open from Lightroom, you're going to be in the pro photo color space in Photoshop as well. And that means that you can have some colors in your file that you simply cannot even see. So shouldn't you convert that to sRGB right away? Well, you can actually preview in Photoshop uh, under proofing colors. Uh, you can actually preview what it will look like in sRGB uh, color space. So you can process your image to that, and then you can do as a last step you can convert it to that. And there should be, if you processed it with your proofing colors on, so that's under menu item view, and then there's a proof setup, and then there's also one that says proof colors. So the proof setup is where you go into just set up, you know, what do I want to pretend I'm working under? Yeah, then you can select the sRGB that you can pretend you're working under, even though your file is in Profoto. And then you have to turn it on. By default, if you do your proof setup, it will automatically turn it on. Yeah. Now, let, so, me, let me ask you a question ahead. real quick on the profiles, um, because we know we touched on you have sRGB and then you have Adobe RGB. Being the that Adobe is the most prevalent software that people are using, why yeah. don't the labs support it? 
because not all machines and not all paper can reproduce that. So oh, okay. it's dependent upon the paper and dependent upon the machines. Some of the machines that some of these labs use are actually a light-sensitive paper, and they're not inkjet. Not that that's bad or nothing. It's just it might introduce certain limitations because of the chemistry, because of the makeup of the paper uh, that you don't have when you have 12 inks going down on it, when you have you know, a really nice inkjet printer, 10 to 12 inks, really expands your color gamut. So the fact that they don't use the Adobe RGB, many of them don't. There's also a simplicity factor, though, because if you have a calibrated screen, which is most likely like mine, it's going to be super close, if not 100% sRGB. The possibility for you to have wonky colors coming out of their system is vastly minimized because if they were to have Adobe RGB support and you don't have the skills or the experience to work with that expanded color, then you open the door to having these, these problems with expectations of what you're going to see. And of course, that means redos. Then you either have an upset customer or your profits go way down if you're going to do them for free. Yeah. So I have a feeling it's for expediency in that regard too, because it really streamlines the opportunities between what's in your home office, let's say, what you're doing and your work on, and their highfalutin machines. Now, this is another thing where you can go to, you know, various places. Um, John Paul Capanigro, I don't know if he still does them, but he's done uh, print workshops before, and they're thousands and thousands of dollars. And they just dive super ultra deep into everything that you could ever think about deeper than I do in my workshops. Um, because they've got the big honking printers and, uh, you know, you spend days and days and days just honing your, your efforts and they're going to be amazing workshops, but they're definitely for the crafts folks who are really wanting to squeeze out that last drop of juice from everything in the process. And the process that I would uh, look to teach here is to say, I'm going to get you 95 or more percent of the way to that process, but we're not going to do the custom paper profiles because when you do the custom paper profiles, that's the last bit that you want to do to really just mm, make it happen, so to speak. And I've done it with my, my printer here. I've done it with the machines up at the school. It's not that huge of an ordeal, but it is definitely that one extra piece of the puzzle that if you can make good images from following the information I just told you, going this little extra step, it shouldn't cost you, in my opinion, it shouldn't cost you thousands upon thousands of dollars. Or if it does, let those thousands upon thousands of dollars be your experience of wasting paper and what might feel like wasting paper but it, and ink, but it's really an investment because you know what not to do if it just messes up. Uh, for me, I leave everything in Profoto and I let the printer handle it. And I always do previews of the color, um, the gamut warnings that Photoshop will give me so I can know, all right, there's color in this area that it's telling me I cannot see on my screen 
And then I know that I'm going to have potential differences in the color on the printer there. So I'm not shocked when I see different color there on the, on the paper. Uh, and that's a gamut warning also under the view, uh, third item down called gamut warning. It'll give you a little gray representation in the, uh, right there on screen. It'll just say, look, from the, where this is at currently pro photo, let's say, and you're telling me preview in sRGB, here's the colors that are out of whack. All right. Well, that's where you can then go with that preview active. You can make your adjustments with your color and you can get it to within spec. Or you can just let Photoshop do it. Go to the edit menu and go down to convert to profile. And then Photoshop will just do it for you. Now, here's the problem with that. And that's, this takes us into the next stage of the actual printing process because you have to do this process, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to do this process sooner or later. Are you going to do it in the printing process? This is, this is where we deviate is probably what I should highlight. This is where we deviate the practice. If you're going online to if you're printing your own, this is the part where you deviate your practice. And so I'll talk about printing your own first, and then I'll talk about going online. So you hit the print button, Command-P or Control-P if you're on a PC, and it gives you a slew of options. Well, the one that you need to make sure you hit is to say Photoshop manages colors. You do not want your printer to manage colors. The printer will do its own thing, and oftentimes it does a pretty good job, but we're looking for perfection out of what, you know, the the everything that we can control. Photoshop managing colors is you being in 100% control. And then you get the opportunity to select a paper profile. So this is where, if I'm using that Canzan Infinity paper I really like, the, Bar the Barita Photographique, I better have that loaded properly in my system and also downloaded from their website. Uh, and then I load it in my system, and then it, Photoshop sees it as available. Now, when I pull up my list of profiles, I must have 200 in there. So it's really a pain to search wow. through the ones that I need. So only because I teach it, and I have both Epson and Canon printers that I support, and it just gets it snowballs from there. So when you see that, you're not going to have all those hundreds there. You're just going to have the ones that you loaded in, either by installing your print driver or just what. And then there's this other question here where it will have in the print dialog box, and it's going to ask you which rendering intent. This is the key. Either you're either going to do it in Photoshop or you're going to do it here in the print dialog box with the rendering intent. Now, Photoshop gives you four options, and the ones that we concern ourselves with are going to be called relative or perceptual. The other ones are called saturation, and I can't think of what the other one is right now because I never use them. Um, for most of the time, I'm choosing relative. What this is all about, it's about how these profiles are considered and how your color is managed between devices. So we have the computer file, it's in Profoto, it has a certain amount of color, and we need to squeeze it down, shall we say, to fit into the paper profile for this printer. What relative is going to do, it's going to take, let's say we have a particular green color, because those are usually the, the problem areas, is greens. 
let's say we have a particular green color and it's outside of what is the color's possibilities for this printer. Well, what Relative will do is it'll say, okay, look, you're at like 105% of what I can actually produce. So I'm going to chop you off and slam you down to 100. And that's it. Nothing else will happen. Now, it'll do it to every single green that that happens to, but it's going to just automatically assign it down to that closest representation that it can actually reproduce. Now, this is usually happening in like less than 2% of our colors in the overall image, unless, let's say, you know, your whole image is this particular green or whatever. Now, I happen to have, there's an image that I have um, from Croatia uh, focusing in, zooming in on the old town. I've got the ocean, the Adriatic Sea going wrapping around it. And that particular blue of that water is problematic for me because, and this is what I use in that video. So when you, when listeners go click on that video, they'll be able to see what I'm talking about because that blue is not accurately representable on my computer screen, but it is on print. And so, yes, that water looks very different. Well, somewhat different, but it's because it's all the same hue. So yes, it affects like 50% of the image, but it's all because it's all one hue. If you have a multi-hued image, then it's just very tiny parts usually where this, where this is a problem. If you were to use perceptual as a choice, and sometimes perceptual looks better in the, in the overall print, but if you were to use perceptual as your rendering intent choice, then you're gonna then the software is gonna take that 105% of possibility for your printer. Let's say it's out of the space; it can only reach 100. But we have this color that's defined at 105%. It will take everything, all those colors down that hue line. Let's say it's a particular green, and you have others down the line that are uh, that are part of that family of greens, shall we say? But they're fully within the color space. Well, it's going to take that 105 and all of them beneath it, and it's going to put it on something like a spring, and it will then compress. And then as you compress the spring, that 105 becomes 100, and then that item that was, that say, let's say 50% of whatever the saturation value is, that'll drop down to, you know, 48%. And so it goes, you know, in in a in a fashion of... Those colors really dark and muddy, you know, not saturated at all. Those hardly have any change. And those colors that are really saturated and out of gamut, those get the most change. So usually, again, relative is where we want to be, especially as a, as a nature photographer. If you're doing something in the city, then experiment with perceptual and you'll probably have some good results there. Uh, then there's one last setting that we need to look at, and that is your media type. And these are defined by your printer. So your printer is going to have this item where it calls it like fine art media, photo matte, photo gloss, all these different media types. And when you download your profile from the printer manufacturer, they're going to tell you what media type to use. And so you select that media type. What that does is that tells the printer, how should I physically handle this media? And then what the profile does is says, okay, given this media, how should I physically squirt the ink on the paper? What quantities do we need? And it takes all that into consideration. And then the final step here on my PDF download is take a look at your print.
and see what needs to happen. Did you mess up in the creative process? Did you mess up in the output sharpening? Take a look again, you know, as new as a new printer, as a new person. Here's actually my advice. Don't even look at it. Just set it to the side. Go back to your output sharpening and change those values. So increase your amount from 100 to, say, 150. And let that be the only thing you change. And then get a printout. Because it's a smart object, you can click on that filter instance. You can go back. You can make those changes without any problems. And then get a third print where you set it back maybe to 100, but you take the radius from 1.2 and you take it up to like 1.5 or 1.8 or just a round number of two. So you can see what those differences are and what's going to happen in that image. And then you can review the images and you can say, okay, I see what these different settings are doing to the image. Where do I want? I, I like the amount here, but I like the radius there. Let's blend those two items together. <clears throat> if too much is getting sharpened, increase your threshold. If not enough is getting sharpened, decrease your threshold and make your adjustments that way and start assessing your print. That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But like you said, once you assess everything, like you said, do three prints, make subtle changes on the output for each one and yeah. see which one to your eye looks best. Yeah. And then that's going to give you your basic template that you're going to want to use going forward. For that subject and that print, yes, <laughs> it will change. Now, we talked about the notion of distance. Yep. And the most important item that you're going to be changing according to the distance that you view the images at is going to be your radius. Because that will... Now, if you were to take your radius and put it at like five it's going to look really chunky. And if you're just holding it 18 inches away from you because you have it in your hand, it's going to look terrible. But if you were to hold it up and show it to me across the room, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it looks pretty good. Because I can still see the detail. I can still see the sharpness, as it were, coming through. Uh, because I'm 25 feet away, it still looks good. Uh, so that radius is the key for... Uh, your distance, and then um, we also said we would talk about the process for if you were going to a lab. So with doing that, you're going to go to edit in Photoshop, menu item edit, and you're going to go to convert to profile, and you're going to convert this to sRGB. Now, there are a, just a couple of, of uh, labs that will give you a... Um, uh, a printer profile that you can preview in Photoshop. Do not, this is usually the case, I haven't seen anyone that wants you to do this, so I'm going to say do not, under any circumstances, assign that printer profile to your computer file, your TIFF file, or your JPEG or whatever. Um, they, that's not what they want. They want you to be able to see how it's going to, you know, to to do the preview like we talked about. But they don't want you assigning that. You, uh, you must assign sRGB or Adobe RGB if they support that or, or whatever. Assign one of those. Uh, get that changed. And then once you make your file, you know, you go through the file, you make your, um, your image layer into a smart object once again. 
you set your your unsharp mask settings to what we talked about. And then I'll, what I'm going to do is do file save as, and I'm going to hit the button at the bottom of the dialog box that says save a copy, and I'm going to save it as a JPEG. And by doing that, yes, you have the JPEG compression, so put it as a level 12 in Photoshop, and you're going to do pretty good. It's going to be just fine. Uh, and it's also going to compress it to 8 bits colors, where by default it's 16-bit color coming from Lightroom. Uh, it, you know, my my thing there is to say, hey, at least you edited in 16-bit color, because when it comes down to 8-bit, yeah, it's a really good conversion. You're still gonna have a good file. Uh, your printer probably, I would say, maybe an equivalent. You know, the desktop printer here is probably an equivalent, maybe if we're lucky, of about 10-bit color. So to have Photoshop feeding 16 bits of information, you know, you, you're losing some out anyway. So the 8-bit color. Not really a big deal to compress that down to your JPEG, as long as you have a JPEG compression of 12. And then do that two more times with the same exact picture. But with those changes like we talked about, where you're going to change the amount, you're going to change the radius, and then take all those three uh, prints and send them to the printer. And then when you upload them to the to the printer, many of them will have a button that says, do not color correct. You definitely want to hit that button. Because once they color correct, something else is being influenced, is coming into your process. And if you're trying to learn this for yourself, this is an investment in your education. This isn't about, I wasted money, or my goodness, this is so expensive and, and whatever. It's going to cost you some money either way. But now you know what's going on with that. Now, another thing I would say is do that with at least five or six different subject types because different subjects require different treatment. And once you have that, that approach, once you have that education for yourself, then you have confidence with what you're going to do in the future. And you can then more target and nail it every single time. And you're going to be happy with your results. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you can't just assume that, if you get your parameters for, say, a portrait, those same parameters are going to give you a, a, a perfect print of a landscape or, Absolutely. or a street photography shot or something like that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be likely going to be very different between those different subjects because you have just different interpretations of what you want to come through with those and it's best to to spread it out a little bit amongst different subjects because that's that's where the the ultimate i guess learning comes in because then you can say hey oh look it works this way here it works that way over here and you've got good stuff coming forward then yeah absolutely and like i said for those listeners out there that wanted this episode this is not not an easy topic so when you want to get into printing your own images, there's quite a bit of work involved. And Brent's got the resources that, that you can check out that'll help you with this um, so that you can get your best possible results. Yeah, so this this free resource that I already mentioned, uh, I don't even ask for people's email address for this. You just click on it and it's just there and available to you. Uh, this is what I use to walk through what we're talking about here. If anyone would like to dive deeper into it, for sure, I invite you to look at my website. I have the Latitude Photography School where my deep dive course on printing is a part of that. And it's got 
about nine hours of video. Now, there's others out there that have done printing courses, and they're one-and-done type of things. You download the videos, and you just go with it. This is a membership kind of idea, so you get the ability to be involved in our monthly group sessions starting in February. We're going to move to two monthly group sessions, and you can ask your questions there. Of course, there's email support and things like that. But there, you know, when you buy the one and done courses, they're probably in the neighborhood of I've seen when I was doing my research, they're they're in the neighborhood of two and a half to four hours worth of video. I give you eight hours of video, which you might be like, oh, that's too much. And I, I can understand that. But the reason I do that is because I cover both Epson and Canon separately. I then also give you uh, in the from the creative processing all the way through to the printing processing. We have at least seven images, I think it is of different subjects, different ISO settings, all these different challenges that we're going to have when we're creatively processing our images, but then also when we're printing those images, each of those is dealt with individually, separately, and in the detail that you need to really sink your teeth into it. And so, again, that's just my name, brentbergherm.com, is where you'll find all of these things. Uh, so you have the the download right there under the resources tab, uh, the homepage just shows you the, the deal on Latitude Photo School. And then if you want to learn this in person, I've got a workshop that's going in June uh, in the Palouse. So the Palouse region of Washington and Idaho, mostly Washington because just the way the map is, but uh, we might get over into Idaho a little bit. There's an old schoolhouse that's just amazing. Um, it's just over the border in Idaho. And then there's the old church too, just over the border in Idaho. So many cool things amongst these rolling wheat hills. Uh, might be some canola, might be some other stuff going on there too. It's just, it's Washington's breadbasket basically. And uh, fantastic time to be there. And we're going to learn, I've, I've rented an Airbnb and we're going to set up in the house. I've already cleared it with the people. So the event is good. You're going to set up in the house and we're just going to spend the heat of the day going through this print process. Absolutely. And that's the way to learn it. And I told my couple of my students that hit me up about this topic. I said, I'm sure Brent's probably got another printing workshop coming up sometime soon because I knew you do them. Yeah. And uh, so now would be the opportunity to take advantage, get over to his website, check out the Latitude Photography School site as well. And if you're interested and you don't mind traveling to Washington State, which it isn't too terribly far, <laughs> no, especially with airplanes. Uh, I'd highly recommend his workshop because you're going to learn all of the nuts and bolts of the printing process and have him right there to answer your questions and explain things to you as far as Absolutely. how the process works. Yeah, I've had in, in ending and in, in parting, so to speak, you know, I, I had a, a great comment come in from one of my uh, listeners, and we were talking about this. Uh, I had posted about this workshop, and he was just like, you know, printing is like space. <laughs> I was kind of like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, it's the final frontier. You know, it's the, it's the it's the last item, it's the last um, manifestation. You know, the last place to explore in your image creation process and your overall creativity and such like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> It, it does feel, especially when you're brand new to it, it does feel a little bit intimidating. It feels a little bit nervous, but really in this, and, and I had another listener reach out when I talked about this on a different podcast, he was like, Brent, 
Uh, he's like, are you you sure you're trying to sell a course? Because you gave us everything. And I nearly gave you everything in, in here. But yeah, because those videos and the ability to to reach out and just have that experience, uh, it is a different experience. But if you want to just do everything here that, that we've talked about and replay this episode five times, then by all means, uh, go through all those details. We covered nearly everything that you need to go, would need to know. And certainly you can do more research on your own and, and make it happen. But again, if you find that the craft isn't for you, the actual judgment of the prince and making sure that you have this going, then just go to an outside place and you have all of this stuff otherwise already figured out as to what you need to do to prepare your files to make these awesome prints happen for you. Absolutely. Make sure you get the profiles that they're going to use when they print it for yep. you, and you're good to go. That, that's yep. how I tend to do it, just because I don't want to get into the the final frontier of printing. <laughs> yeah, but it can be so, it is, I think, so rewarding. You know, in, in one of those videos on the on the course, I had this image from Hong Kong, and I had spent hours, you know, processing it and just whatever, looking at the image, thinking back to my experience there and just, you know, everything about this location, the experience, everything. And then I was talking to the camera, uh, but then I finally turned to look at the print, you know, it had come out and I was just talking jibber jabbering for another three minutes or so. Then I looked at the print and I was just like, even still, you know, I'm just like, I'm dumbfounded. I just like, wow, this is, the perfect manifestation of everything I planned for from the time I was there shooting. I was like, this is going to make a great print. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then I was able to bring that to fruition and execute that in a fine. This was, uh, ended up as a 17 by 22 inch print. I was just like, yes, <laughs> this is why we do this. I love it. It's just so rewarding and so fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny too, because I know a few other people that like to, that are really into printing their own photos and they're just as passionate about it as you are. And so it's so funny how, uh, the, the photographers that really get into the printing aspect, they're, they're like all in. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of, it, it's almost like you almost have to be, um, and I, and I would say for those who don't know yet, you know, certainly dip your toe in the water with printing online. Or if you have one of these Lexmark, like you talked about, if you have one of these printers, use the print module in Lightroom and get a few things going because those still do really good results. It's just you're not going to be able to really fine tune and just wrestle every single bit of detail and control every single bit of detail, like the process that we espoused here. But if you need, certainly if you, if, if you are going to feel more comfortable starting with what you already have, by all means, please do it because you're going to then see what comes out of it, what can happen, I, I might should say, and what can come out of it with a little more attention to what the process is and the details you're putting into it and the effort you're putting into it. Absolutely. And who knows, you may end up becoming a printing super fan like Brent is. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Brent, is there anything else we needed to touch on before we wrap up this episode? I think we have really, I think we've really been thorough. And if there's any questions for sure, I would invite folks to go ahead. I've got a contact for my website. You can take a look at that on the about page. There's a contact form. 
uh, you're welcome to reach out to me. And there's actually one on the homepage too. You're certainly welcome to reach out and just say, hey, you mentioned this on Liam's podcast and I'm still scratching my head and I'll do my best to respond to you in a prompt manner, uh, especially if you can do it before January. Cause Hey, like I said, I'm on sabbatical and I'm not going into the office. So, um, yeah, let me know. Let me know. Yeah. Now's, now's the time to email them. You'll be able to get a much quicker response. <laughs> Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> and if anybody can answer your question about printing, it's definitely Brent. Thank you, Brent. I want to thank you so much for your time. You've been a fabulous guest as always. And I, like I said, I knew when I had students asking me about the printing process, I'm like, I've got to get Brent for this. He's one of the only people I know that knows printing so in depth and he's so passionate about it. I was yeah. like, this has got to be a Brent episode. It has to be. Well, thank you, Liam. I'm always happy to help out and share. And, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm pretty excited about these things. And the more I can talk about it, the more excited I get. And that's just awesome. It's just been a blast. And I can't wait to hear what the listeners think about it. So, you know, do let me know when you get feedback. <laughs> Hopefully you will. Oh, absolutely. I do on all the episodes. Some I get more feedback than others. Um, yeah. I know I, I get a good amount of downloads, but not everybody, you know, they don't always text me or DM me sure. or whatever oh, the yeah. case may be. Um, and remember, those of you that are listening that are really into, want to really get into the nuts and bolts of printing, Brent does have that workshop coming up in the Palouse region. So you may want to get over to his website and get signed up for that before all the slots are gone. There's four seats left at the time of this recording. So only, only it, cow. <laughs> oh, out of only five. So, you know, oh, I've only okay. had one sale at this time, but it's a small workshop. You're going to get the attention you need. Exactly. It's going to be a very good uh, student to mentor ratio there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for your time, Brent. And thank you so much for covering this topic because I had a lot of requests for, you know, students, whether or not they should get into printing their own stuff. And if they weren't, how they should prep their files to send out to yeah. a lab. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, sir, again for your time. Yeah, take care. And we will talk to you again someday, uh, sometime soon down the road. Very good. All right. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. All right. So that is going to wrap up episode 201 of the Liam Photography Podcast, Printing Your Photos with my guest, Brett Bergram. He is a fantastic resource for anything you want to know about printing your own images, whether you're going to do it yourself or you're going to send them out to a lab. He gave you tons of information in this, but he does have the workshop coming up and he does have the training on the Latitude Photography School website of his. Those links will all be in the show notes. So you can go ahead and check out his printing course. It's in-depth. It's eight to nine hours of video training so you can get all of the information you need. And it doesn't matter if you're using Canon or Epson printers. He's got separate tracks for both types of printers. So you will get absolutely all of the information you need. All right. I want to thank all of my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing an Apple podcast, Google podcast, verbal and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also remember to stop by and check out the Liam Photography YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, comment on them, share them out. Hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. And I will see you all again on Sunday.